we knew that we needed to get to 4K, but the technology to do a color critical display wasn't there. And they said we would rather have a very accurate display than a display that just does 4K. All right, here we go. You're listening to the Tom Parrish Interview Show, and we're here to talk about HP's new Dream Color 2, as it's been referred to. That is a 27-inch 10-bit panel with a 2560 by 1440 pixel resolution, but this baby supports 4K inputs. So how exactly does this panel really support 4K? What about color gamuts and pricing? Bottom line, is this panel the right answer for color critical work? Let's go find out. First, a bit of history. The first Dream Color won wide adoption among graphics professionals. I know there are big animation houses in Hollywood, for example, that bought Dream Colors by the truckload. I've had a number of filmmakers use them to review graded work I send back and forth with them. However, in the calibration arena, we all know there were a few issues with calibrating the Dream Color panel easily. So, back to the interview. I'm here with Greg Statton, Dream Color architect from HP, and Derek Smith, CTO at SpectraCal. What I'm excited about here is the collaboration between HP and SpectraCal, bringing you the best of both worlds for the client. You gotta love that. So let's go find out more. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. And hello again, Derek. It's a pleasure to have you back. Oh, yes. Thank you. I always uh, enjoy these interviews. Greg, what was the motivation to design a new version of the Dream Color Monitor? Well, the motivation really came from our customers. It had been a number of years since the first Dream Color display had come out, and there have been quite a few advances in technology since then, and also advances in, I guess for the best way to say it, is their needs of what they wanted to be able to do. So a couple of years ago, we started on this, and we took about six months and literally traveled around the world talking to our customers and listen to them with a kind of an open mind saying, tell us what you need. And then we would go back and do some iterations and then fly back to the same customers and talk to them and say, okay, this is what we're thinking. What do you think? And we would literally tweak and develop this sitting in you know, essentially animation rooms with animators from a variety of houses, sitting in a conference room at VFX facilities and so on. What this means is that I can sit down and go literally through the menus of the display mm-hmm. and point to various features and say, okay, that feature came from this VFX house. <laughs> this feature was requested by this animator. This was requested by this colorist. It means that we really had a customer-designed feature system. And what's great about that is it means we can do things that we may not have thought of ourselves, such as expanding the digital cinema capabilities, working on remote management, and developing an SDK, which made it possible for us to work with companies like SpectraCal. So, Derek, then you were part of this initial phase in designing the new version of the DreamColor Monitor. Yes, um, we worked on the existing DreamColor 1 uh, on that project and gave them some suggestions on stuff that we needed from an SDK and from interfaces. And then as Greg pointed out, they went away for about six months and then came back and said, here, try this. <laughs> and uh, it, it pretty, most of it pretty much worked out of the box. You know, we still had to do some refinements and uh, tweaked it. But, but we've been very pleased with the, the working relationship that we have with Greg and his team in HP. Hey, Craig, I'm curious, what were some of the top two or three things that were asked for while you were out collecting inputs? 
Well, certainly the number one on everyone's mind is to make sure the calibration was easier yeah. and was more reliable. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the calibration was, uh, let's just say it was a good solution at the time based on <laughs> what was out there. Yeah. But certainly things have evolved and they wanted better quality. They didn't, a lot of our big customers end up rolling their own calibration software, Ugh. which that's not a fun thing to do. And not only a few companies out there can do that. Right. So it's a really nice, that was really key. Other features that we saw, believe it or not, was remote management. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a big request. So the display has a remote management engine in it, which is something you really haven't seen before in a display. What does that mean exactly? Well, part of that is the SDK, but that means that they can literally log into the display mm -hmm. from, for example, an IT management console or a one-to-one -one relationship and control the display. Oh. Some of the things that they've used it for already is, for example, in a visual effects environment, you have multiple films in-house. Some of these films use a 709 color space. Some of them are working with a P3 gamut. So they need to be able to switch, sometimes if you're double shifting, to get films delivered. And they told me that one of the things they have to do is literally run a bunch of engineers around switching monitors at shift change. Oh, boy. So they love the fact that with the, with the remote management capability, they can basically issue a command out to the monitors to switch. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, things like that are, they, they've, to me, we literally had these guys dreams. They'd pipe dreamy, what, what would be so cool for you to do? And we were able to accomplish most of what they wanted. Okay, great. What's the model number for the new Dreamcolor monitor? It's a Z27. Yeah, the Z27X. Okay, so I've been looking at the Dreamcolor Z27X specs. They're really quite impressive. Does 100% of Adobe RGB, 99% of P3. But what's the real deal with 4K input ability versus 4K display ability? Okay. Well, back at the genesis of the display's development, when we were investigating with customers, they all knew that 4K was coming. Yeah. They didn't necessarily know when it was coming, but they realized that it was this thing that was going to cause them to radically expand their pipeline for production, uh, insane amounts of more space. Oh, yeah. In fact, still sure. a majority of films out there are not done in 4K. They're done in 2K, 2K and oh, yeah. basically blown up to 4K. Because the pipeline requirements, I mean, it's four times the pixels to have to render out. Yep, I'm painfully aware. Yeah. So we knew that we needed to get to 4K, but the technology to do a color-critical display wasn't there. And they said we would rather have a very accurate display than a display that just does 4K. And to be honest, the 4K panels that were available for us and in the pipeline were not good enough for what we needed. They really weren't focused. They were look, we do 4K, not let's do good 4K. <laughs> so in this display, we designed an architecture to let them, and think of it as kind of a traditional or bridge product, work with 4K today, and eventually we will do a true 4K display that is 4096 wide is our goal, but we won't do that until we have all the pieces together to do it right. So I can't say when that's going to be. That could be a year. That could be two years from now. It comes down to when can we do it the right way. Mm -hmm. But the current display will take in a 3840 or a, or a 4096 wide image. It will run it frame for frame at 24 hertz, which means that you're not driving the display at 30 or 60 hertz. 
you're driving it truly at 24. So there's no frame rate conversion. It's a one-to-one frame relationship for playback. Excellent. And we took the scaling algorithms that we had and we custom designed one to support a 4K down convert, since we figured that this is a way people will often do, show me the whole 4K frame. For sure. And beta sites reported back to us that they would put a 4K monitor next to this display, and they said if they backed up about three to four feet, they couldn't tell the difference between the two, other than the fact that the picture was more accurate on the Z27X. We do know that there needs to do 4K pixel for pixel. I'll tell you that there's a cinematographer that we work with on this because he wanted to be able to use this on set as his basically composition and focus display. So he needed pixel for pixel. And so we implemented two different ways. One is to basically pop in from one corner to another. And that's great for hopping around the frame. Right. But Uh, He said, I really want to be able to pick out any area of interest I want. So we developed a dynamic scroll. When you turn this on, a pop-up appears in the monitor that shows you the entire 4K frame. Right. And then you can use four buttons on the bezel to scroll in real time, left to right, up or down. And it's all updating in real time. So it's really cool. There's a little box in the full frame uh, vision that shows you where you are in the frame. So he could hit any area he wanted to, then basically press a button and hop back to seeing the entire frame. So compose, pop in for focus, pop back out again. I love that. And something that we did, because he really wanted to be able to get to the areas that matter, is that the display supports uh, aspect ratio management for digital cinema uh, frames. So they can specify a 185 or 239 aspect ratio in the display. It will dynamically crop to that, and it obeys that aspect ratio when you're scrolling around a 4K frame. So that means if I'm at a 239 aspect ratio, it's a widescreen pop-up that appears. And as I scroll around, I'm never scrolling into black bar. I'm bound basically by the aspect ratio they wanted. And that can be turned on or off dynamically. They can also, if they want, put the masking not as a solid mask, but as a partially transparent overlay so they can check their top lines. Okay, Greg, I like the solution you're talking about with regards to scaling 4K images to fit in this particular panel and all the other issues that you had to address and making that happen. That's really pretty cool. So I know everyone's really curious about this 1D versus 3D LUT issue, and we're going to get to that, but I want to do a little bit more stage setting. I want to talk about this collaboration between HP and SpectraCal And what that was like, I mean, it's really kind of a wonderful thing for vendors to collaborate like this on product designs across different technology issues because the customer really benefits. So let's find out more about it. Derek, how about you start out? What was this collaboration like from your perspective? We started working with Greg about two years ago on a Dreamcolor 1 project. We were doing some work with Disney and some other studios looking at better, faster ways of automating calibration for the Dreamcolor 1 and found that, as Greg pointed out, the interface really hadn't been developed for third-party developers to, to you know, gain access to the lookup tables in the display. Um, we ran into you know, just a lot of issues because it wasn't really designed for it. And it was about the time they'd already started moving on to designing the new display. So we just gave them feedback and input. It said, okay, if you're, if you're designing a new display, this is the kind of interface we'd like to have. Because, um, you know, we've worked with a lot of other manufacturers and thought a lot of ways of 
other manufacturers have done it wrong. We've seen ways that some manufacturers have, have done it good. And so we gave uh, Greg some feedback on how we'd like to see that. And uh, they basically went out and implemented it. As you pointed out, you know, they're, they're listening to their customers, their install base, mm-hmm. um, including their partners. And so um, that was really important to us because that's a similar philosophy that we use at SpectraCal where, you know, that's how we build our products. We go to trade shows, we go to training classes, um, you know, we do webinars and we listen to feedback. And if somebody asks for a feature or doesn't understand how particular capability in our product works, then we go out and figure out why. And more often than not, they're not the only person asking or not understanding. It's usually, you know, they represent a group. It's just not everybody speaking up. Mm-hmm. And so we're very keen to enhance our product the same way. So we have a similar philosophy. So the working relationship worked out really well. So Greg, how was it for you from the other side? Well, on the other side, it, I, I'll have to say it worked really well. Uh, one of the things that is exciting to work with is people who are passionate about what they do. Certainly in VFX and animation, it's a creative side, so they're very passionate. And it was very wonderful to, to have that same engagement with uh, Derek and with the other folks at SpectraCal where they understood the problem and they really wanted to solve it. Solving problems is where things get fun. You know, sometimes it's very painful, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but it was great to have, uh, to have Derek basically engage with because he would say, okay, this is not working in this way. And you understood the context he was coming from. So we could work with the developers uh, who do our software programming and make sure that we were doing the right thing. And it was a nice back and forth engagement to get things working in it. That's that's really rewarding. And I think ultimately it doesn't just end up with a better product uh, for for SpectraCal, but it's something that then our internal uh, developers at various companies like uh, ILM or Pixar could then use and do more with. And one thing I'll just mention that was especially gratifying working with SpectraCal is because they focused on so many markets, not just media and entertainment, we're able to now talk to other customers and provide them a solution that we couldn't have done on our own. For example, folks working in geospatial imaging, folks working in medical. Uh, since SpectraCal has calibration software to support those industries, we are able to go to them and say, look, with this software, you have a solution that you can utilize. Oh, great point. So, Greg, are you a Calman user yourself? I'm curious. Absolutely. We use it in our displays lab. Everything that goes through and comes out as a display product has to go through our lab. And we are testing over and over again. And we have a photo research PR740. We have a <laughs> Klein K10A and a bunch of Konica Minolta stuff. Oh, yeah. And we use Calman to basically do the measurements for front of screen accuracy. Mm-hmm. We will check to make sure that during the early times that panels are meeting spec. Right. Uh, making sure that the the hardware engineer is engineered correctly, that the guys working on the software code did the right job. And we used it extensively during the development of the 27X. Uh, I would literally spend days, we called it the dark room, which is where <laughs> the, the 740 lived, where I would go in there and I'd spend days running tests. And what is so awesome about Calman is that Prior to this, I had to keep and maintain a whole bunch of spreadsheets to do math. And pouring data out of the photo research application into all those spreadsheets is, shall we say, not the most fun thing to do. And Calman 
gives me the data where I could, as I'm iterating through all of our software development, give very accurate data to our developers to say, look, this is where we have a problem. This needs to be adjusted. And I've actually gotten feedback from you know, the, not only the software developers, but some of the hardware and panel makers that ask us, where are you generating this data? This is awesome. You know, when I was at NAB, I saw over at the Client Instruments booth that the the Client 10A hooked right into the USB port, I think, right underneath the monitor, uh, which was really pretty cool. And there's some firmware in there for doing the calibration for the display. So if your company already owns one of those probes or maybe photo research or something, what what are the other probes that you support? Yep. Yeah, we support the Klein. We also support all the photo research spectroradiometers for direct connection to the display. And it gives us the ability to do, you know, a very good quality calibration built in the display. And we actually worked with um, a couple of color scientists at two different um, animation, well, one animation, one VFX house to help develop that software. But even though we have a what we think is a very good calibration built in the display, that doesn't necessarily meet everyone's workflow. Right. If you've standardized on CalMan, then we need to fit in with what fits their workflow because that's the ultimate goal here. Right, right. Good point about SpectraCal being able to match up really well with any company's workflow processes around calibration. That's definitely one of the strengths of the tool. Okay, guys, it's time. Let's tackle the big issue, the let issue. Greg, I saw you jumped in on the Lift Gamma Game Forum a while back, and all the usual suspects were hammering away with regards to the fact that the new Dream Color only incorporates a 1D LUT for display calibration purposes, so therefore you cannot do color-critical work. How about replaying the key technical points you made on the forum here in this podcast so everyone can hear your response? I, I thought what you, what you provided was really very, very insightful. Yeah. But, you know, there's there's always the, the concept that if 1D is good, 3D must be better because it's obviously three times better. And, you know, there are some absolute benefits to both LUT structures. One is not automatically just by name better than the other. And what we did during development process is we literally had the customers make this decision for us. We worked very, very closely with color scientists at a couple of different animation houses and three different VFX houses. And they all did modeling of the color management pipeline inside the display. We, the interesting thing is most of the displays out there that do hardware-based 3D LUTs are actually only a nine cube. Right. And nine cubes, you know, they felt and their models demonstrated that for them, especially in the shadow detail, a nine cube just didn't have enough resolution. And in fact, they argued that for some of their work, that a 17 cube was just barely good enough mm -hmm. and that they could get a better result with a 14-bit 1D. And, you know, they said that we use 17 cubes all through our color pipeline, but they said that the functionality in the display is in many ways different. Fascinating. So we could have gone with a 3D LUT. We were basically doing parallel development on both sets of pipelines. And they told oh, us. Interesting. I thought there would be more hardware required for a 3D uh, LUT. It, it depends. It's a, you know, we didn't actually get down to the coding. We were, ba we, we had to make a decision before we did coding design. But in terms of modeling and, you know, looking at hardware, we had two pipelines that we were running because mm. we knew that we needed them to make that call. And 
it really came down to their modeling. They said, hey, we need this definition within the display and we trust the 1D better. Mm -hmm. In fact, they told us that if we do decide to do a 3D, please make sure it can also work in a you know, LUT matrix LUT configuration. <laughs> Uh, because they wanted to be able to use that. And sometimes it's what you're comfortable with. Right. And they were all comfortable with working with that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure at some point we will have a display that can do both. Right. But uh, they're telling me that if I if we want to do it, do a 33 cube or better. Whoa. Um, so there's that. I'll just tell you right now, the hardware doesn't exist to do that in real time yet. All right. So, Derek, now I'm real curious what your thoughts are on this 1D versus 3D lot issue in the display. Yes. Um, as Greg pointed out, for 3D LUTs to be very effective, especially when we start getting into some of the low light gamma transfer areas, mm -hmm. um, you have to be a 33. Um, and your choice is a 33 cubed or even a higher density 1D LUT, or as Greg pointed out, the possibility of running a LUT and a cube in a LUT. The reason you need 3D LUTs in today's display technology isn't because it makes the display more accurate. It's because the displays have nonlinear transfer issues within their video pipelines and or the panel itself. So examples of that are what often people refer to as RGB coupling. As we come out of black, it's really, really difficult to reach saturated colors coming out of black unless you've mm -hmm. done your homework. If you've done your homework and your video pipeline supports it well, and your panel supports it with a high bit depth and was designed properly, then you typically don't have these RGB coupling issues. Also, manufacturers have a tendency to go in and create alternative or modified um, lookup areas in the display to you know, have flesh tones look a certain way. You know, so, they, so they start doing some of these creative or dynamic um, management in the color space engine. Those usually defeat the purpose of what we're trying to do. So the thought, the, the modeling is, and this is how, you know, our product works. This is, you know, when we talked to Charles pointing about, you know, the theory behind 3D LUTs, 1D LUTs, you know, he concurs on all of this as well. That if your display is truly linear, you know, theoretically linear, that you have truly an RGB additive display. So when you add any amount of red, green, and blue, you get exactly that out of the display. You don't need 3D LUTs. But a 1D LUT is fine. And in primarily what you're doing with the 1D LUT is you're modeling whichever gamma transfer that you need for, for, for any particular standard. Um, and so with working with Greg and their displays, we found that when we measure the display, it is extremely linear. Um, they got all of their RGB coupling modeling done properly, which means the display doesn't need a 3D LUT. There's really no benefit to going to 3D other than making it either more expensive or more complex to calibrate. Um, there's no really additional benefit if the display is truly RGB coupled. And so that's what we found with the with the dream color as it is. So Derek, when would you need 3D LUT correction for a display? 3D LUTs are primarily designed for de dealing with nonlinear areas of a display. And if the display right. is truly linear, that it is RGB coupled properly, you don't necessarily need 3D LUTs. Yeah. And that was just, you know, one of the challenges of the design. This is a custom designed panel uh, for us. And it's because uh, uh, the, the biggest challenge we're facing in uh, technology today in terms of panel is that it's uh, like everything else. It's a drive to the bottom in terms of cost. So 
Mm. more and more compromises get made. And in order to get past those compromises, you have to do some custom hardware engineering. And they're just, we, we look at this, you know, we look at panels every day that are coming in and you're seeing, like, it's like Derek said, a proper linearity in a display is becoming a rare thing. It's becoming less and less common. Interesting. Interesting. Well, okay. Last question, Greg, is the new dream color monitor shipping? It's shipping in quantity. Uh, in fact, the only challenge we have right now is it's selling better than sales anticipated. Yeah. So we're basically having to build and air freight in displays just to keep up with demand. So that's a, that's a good problem to have. Absolutely. Uh, you know, keep the factories uh, running. But it is it is available. It is fourteen ninety nine in the U.S. and similar prices all over the world based on whatever currencies are and, and you know customs and all that fun stuff you have to deal with. But that our goal in developing this product was to ship it at half the price of the previous generation, the LP24EZX. And that originally shipped at $3,200. So we were able to hit that point. Yeah, I thought the monitor, the new one, was going to be in the 3, 4K range also. So I'm really quite amazed that you got it down at half the price. And I can only imagine it's making it all the more popular. Yeah, it, it's fun. You know, and it means that we're seeing customers that as a, used to be, they'd say, okay, we'll order one or two. And then six months later, nine months later, they might order more. We're seeing customers say, okay, we tested one, we like it. And a couple of weeks later, they say, we'll buy 80, you know, which is, which is great. Um, but there, you know, the good news is, is that we accomplished a lot and there's, and even there's a customer I can specifically think of already mm -hmm. that was so chomping at the bit to get this display working with SpectraCal that I would be getting emails from him every day saying, Derek, have a bill for you yet? Does Derek have a bill for you yet? Does Derek have a bill for you yet? <laughs> yeah, we had, we had three-way conversations going between us <laughs> customers so that we can get them early builds of Calman as we were still implementing code with HP and with Greg. And we're like, um, well, this feature works. We haven't implemented this one. Okay, I want to test that. And then we advance <laughs> the next one. And so it was like daily builds that were going around as we were developing yeah. it. Well, that's the kind of customer you like to have, for sure. Well, you know, as a colorist, I'm really interested in trying this monitor out myself. I'm very curious to see how it works out in the studio. And I know anyone that's looking over the shoulder with regards to 4K is going to have to just take a look at this. I mean, the price point is really is really good. In summary, I think any media professional that's interested in 4K or moving that way is we're going to really appreciate what you've done with regards to the trade-offs here, the price points, the color accuracy focus. No doubt to me, it's already pretty popular. So, Greg, thanks for being here with us. Thank you very much for having us. And Derek, once again, I always appreciate having you on the show. Oh, thanks, Tom. I always enjoy these. So if you find this music interesting, which I hope you do, I wanted to let you know I'm using it with permission from a rather creative group called the Polish Ambassador Project. They're on Jumpsuit Records, and this particular album, I pulled a couple of tracks from Pushing Through the Pavement. You'll want to check them out. <laughs> 